Hello, I'm Christopher Cassan, and this is Ireland's Edge. On today's episode, Traversing the Uncanny Valley, how do we navigate the wild and wonderful world of the internet? Roisin Kybert is the author of The Disconnect, A Personal Journey Through the Internet, which asks how we live now in a world that we increasingly experience online. The last 18 months of remote working, learning and socialising have only further emphasised how the boundaries between the internet and our real lives have become so porous as to be meaningless. From diet influencers to cheese brands, dating to data, Roisin explores the cultures and habits of this strange space. At the National Gallery of Ireland, Roisin spoke with Ireland's Edge curator Shiva Quinlan about what we have learned in our creation of a more connected and disconnected world. So firstly, congrats on the publication of The Disconnect. It was a book that I greatly enjoyed and have also felt slightly rattled after, after reading. Um, Roisin's book explores her personal and professional journey through the internet. And I thought as good a place as any to begin might be the, the small period of your life that you spent online as a celebrity cheese. Yeah, that's right. Um, I'm glad to hear it rattled you. That was definitely my intention. <laughs> but yeah, um, I worked for a while as a social media manager at an ad agency. And the only brand they really gave me was cheese, cheddar cheese, all day, every day. So my job was mostly to talk to teenagers about cheese. And in the book, I go into it a bit more in detail. But at one point, Harry Styles named drop. He name dropped my cheese in an interview, not my cheese, but the, the cheese that I was representing. And did Harry Styles follow you back as a cheese? I think he actually did, because that created then a sort of tsunami of um, teenage girls messaging me, asking if I could somehow get them closer to Harry Styles. It was a real lesson in kind what of... What a position of power to, to hold. Yeah, one I was not entirely comfortable with. You know, I was just trying to get through the day, like finding enough macro images of melting cheddar on toast. <laughs> to, to just kind of, you know, do my job. But suddenly I was responsible for the, the happiness, really, of, uh, of... these teenage girls. Fangirls, yeah. Um, and did you ever facilitate an intro? No, it didn't work. I never, I never tried it, to be fair, but I suspect he had better things to do with his time. Than reply to, to a cheese. Yeah, no one expects the cheese to talk, to talk back. It's one of those, like, prime examples. You know, during that time, every brand was kind of inebriated almost on this process, the possibilities of the internet. They were like drunk on the possibilities of the internet and they all had to have a presence. And if you had a lot of money, then you had an app as well. Mm-hmm. And your app could, you know, harvest data. But I mean, does cheese need an app? Questionable. Questionable. Yeah. Question mark. Yeah. Many truths there. <laughs> and I was part of that era, you know, that first wave of enthusiasm around. So when, when did the moment come where you thought, okay, you know, I don't think I can be a celebrity cheese anymore. <laughs> I think I, when I saw the bizarre economics of the whole thing, that, you know, it seemed so valueless, but that uh, they also prized reach, brands prized mm-hmm. reach over anything. It was an interesting time. Um, around that year, Snowden went public, mm-hmm. and there was this sudden wave of awareness around data and social media and, you know, the potentially negative things that could come of using these platforms and at the same time if you worked at an ad agency or in any kind of industry like that you'd get these reps arriving in the office from Facebook and Twitter telling you that they were at the helm of this revolutionary force in culture Mm -hmm. and I suppose they weren't wrong but um we never really put two and two together you know Mm -hmm. um we never thought about how 
this is an invasion of privacy, <laughs> for one thing. This is the kind of pop culture side of a thing which has profound implications for you know politics, even for our sense of self, which is something that is harder to, I think, to quantify in studies or to even you know find what everyone always asks for, the real world harm or the damage of living with surveillance capitalism. Mm -hmm. So I think that's where maybe a book like mine can step in because it's telling a human story mm -hmm. um, of something that hasn't been really studied to the extent that it could be. And something that strikes me through your writing, you touch on surveillance, both in, in a capitalist sense, um, and I feel capital surveillance is a term that we've now come to sort of gloomily accept. It's something, it's, yeah. it's a dark shadow that, that follows us around. It's the, the cheese on the internet that doesn't reply to our, to our DMs. Yeah. Um, <laughs> not really your friend. <laughs> no, not, not really your friend. Um. Um, but I found it fascinating, um, the control that you took in, I guess, regaining your, your autonomy as, as a, a person on the internet who is being surveilled. And through the essays in which you explore the trials and tribulations of internet dating, um, through which we are, we are all universally scarred, um, <laughs> I found it fascinating that when you decided to step back from the realm of, of Bumble, you didn't just deactivate your account, you went a little step further in, in closing that down and, and regaining that autonomy from, from perhaps the, the information and the data that might have been been gleaned from you in your time there. So could you tell me firstly, how did you go about requesting that data? Oh yeah, it's something anyone can do for any social media platform that they use, or maybe any company that they've given data to, full stop, I think. It's um, in Europe, under GDPR, we have the right to request our data, and we also have the right to be forgotten. Mm -hmm. um, and that was kind of all falling into place um, in the period in which I was writing the book. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, okay, let's do this, let's see. Because I guess the point I wanted to make was um, I'm very influenced by sci-fi, like sci-fi novels, sci-fi films, and we all know what Soylent Green is made of. Um, <laughs> Tell me. Oh, I don't want to spoil it. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's made of people. Um, oh my God. Uh, Soylent Green is made of people, and the internet is made of people too. That's my perspective on things. Mm -hmm. I see everything through, <laughs> through Philip K. Dick and through <laughs> Soylent Green and whatever else I'm obsessed with at, at whatever time. But, uh, you know, it is that sort of same horror almost that comes over you when you realize my data, my behavior, my connections, my behaviors, everything that makes me human mm -hmm. is what the internet runs on. Mm -hmm. And it's what gives these companies their value. And it's what gives, you know, Jeff Bezos the money to build his rocket into space mm -hmm. to escape the planet that has turned against him. Um, so, it was that idea of almost like the abject when you find, you know, you see blood and you realize that's what's inside my own body. This was like drawing blood from the internet. It's not, I don't know if it even gives me autonomy because, you know, there's a real sense of futility in my book and of having to basically learn to live with these things mm -hmm. instead of ever maybe, maybe changing them. They are going to change and laws are going to change around them and and, you know, the public is more skeptical now than they were 10 years ago or eight years ago when I was a cheese on the internet. They're less idealistic about things like Twitter. Most of us just call it a hellscape now, don't we? Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and, and did you find it jarring to receive... So, so in your book, you publish a section of, of this data that they've, they've given back to you. Um, and I believe the process was trickier in terms of, I mean, one can sign up for any dating app that they like. 
But in terms of retrieving this information, there was a serious vetting process and documents that had to be handed over and yeah, it's a lot proof harder. that you are the real you. Yeah, it's, it's the same logic as things like terms and conditions documents, mm-hmm. isn't it? Like, it's made so that we will click it without thinking. And I don't blame anyone who does click it without thinking. I do that all the time myself because mm-hmm. I think it's in Shoshana Zuboff's book. It takes, what, like 72 days, 75 days of the year to read all the terms and conditions of the average internet user. No one's going to do it. And the same thing comes like with trying to get your data back. They're not counting on you doing that. They're counting on you just leaving them to it and abandoning the service when you eventually either find someone on the dating app or become extremely depressed and never want to use it again. <laughs> and, and when you requested it, did you know what to expect? Did you, did you know what kind of a dossier you might get in return? I think I expected it. Or was that a great it, unknown? Yeah, I expected it to be better. Um, <laughs> better, that, better in what way? Bumble, it was just extremely limited. It's interesting if you contrast it with a much earlier dating service online, uh, OkCupid, which mm-hmm. I think some people will probably know all about and others will... It's like a long time ago in tech years, mm-hmm. you know? But they um, were very open about the fact that they were using data at every step of the way and that they kind of said it was in the user's interests mm-hmm. and they were transparent about it. They had this really famous blog where they would like run data experiments and it was another, it was a very different atmosphere mm-hmm. and I think more meaningful relationships came out of it, but that's entirely my opinion. And another thing that strikes me, the way in which you explore surveillance through the disconnect I suppose you're exploring surveillance in the capitalist sense, but then also in a social sense. And I feel that's broken down into the social sense in which we all surveil each other on the internet. But you touch on, on a notion of, of self-surveillance. Yeah. Could you unravel that for us? Yeah, I think um, it links in with, you know, I, I opened the book with this line, again, borrowed from sci-fi. It's like, I am the new flesh, you know, from, it's from the film Videodrome. Um, but part of that kind of cyborg identity, it's, it's not knowing where behaviors are naturally your own or whether they, they're ideas that have been kind of planted in your head by, mm-hmm. by the technology you use every day. And surveillance is definitely one of those. I think... Um, in Ireland, you know, we have a tradition of sort of watching each other because we're a small country. Mm-hmm. Um, but technology, especially I would say Twitter, has taken that to a whole new level where, yeah, you sort of internalize the demands of your Twitter feed and you carry it with you everywhere you go. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's such a hard thing to pinpoint. Um, I think in, in the disconnect, the parts where I really wanted to explore it were on the dates, the apocalypse dates. Yes. Um, <laughs> where, you know, they're, they're internet dates, so they're going to be awkward anyway. But the fact that we've all met each other through the internet, well, most of the, the guys in those chapters, um, means that they kind of take the behaviors of the internet with them into real life. Mm-hmm. And I would argue it's a really... So for those for those who haven't been on on an internet date and might know what those behaviors are, yeah, what what would they be? I think I think on dating apps we're encouraged to treat each other the way that these companies treat us, mm-hmm. which is as disposable as a picture and maybe some potential, but little else, mm-hmm. you know, as something that can just be tossed aside in a second. Um, and I think consequently we all have a fear of becoming disposable too. Mm-hmm. So we try to play our cards right, you know, and we try to present this version of ourselves that's almost algorithmically 
optimized mm -hmm. to appeal to another person. And that at its most toxic, you see that then the same thing going on among incels, which I didn't delve into too much in the book. There's a bit of it. Mm -hmm. um, I've written about them in the past, though. I used to write a column about internet cultures for Vice, and in part that was sort of the primer, and in part that was what led me to the mental breakdown that <laughs> the disconnect opens with. Mm -hmm. But those guys, the incels, like, I don't know if it's still quite as active as it was maybe three or four years ago, but they've just the most sort of robotic understanding of what attraction is and consequently are profoundly depressed and mm -hmm. feel worthless. And that leads them to then obviously misogyny and violence. Mm -hmm. Massive numbers of shooters are linked to them. Like the, it, you, there's a Wikipedia page that gathers up all the school shootings and they, they haven't stopped. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with the logic of living under late capitalist internet. Mm -hmm. It's not just like living under late capitalism, but it's, it's the internet where your entire identity and your sense of self-worth is bound up in social media. Mm -hmm. And what role do you think gender politics play in self-surveillance? I mean, that's such an interesting subject and I think demands a book of its own, mm. you know, because arguably women have been practicing auto-surveillance or, you know, whatever you want to call it, since time immemorial. Mm -hmm. You know, they've always had that gaze outside themselves. They've always been aware of being watched and they've been watching themselves being watched. And, you know, it really does strengthen that idea of, like, the performance of gender. And I think it's really interesting that men are suddenly so much more aware of that gaze being turned upon them mm. on the internet. And they're not kind of taking it with grace. <laughs> they're, they're very angry about it or they're very bitter about it. And some of them are trying to mentally manifest larger jaws. And some of them are using Photoshop. To mentally manifest larger jaws. Yeah, this is this thing. Um, <laughs> actually, another writer, Ian Malini, um, sent me, um, he just emailed me about this ages ago, and I had never heard of it before, but there's this entire movement going on online right now. I think it's on parts of Reddit where you just mentally, you meditate on the idea of your jaw being bigger. Oh, wow. Yes. <laughs> and then you, you get the gains. Okay. Yeah. So an expression of, of hyper-masculinity. <laughs> hyper yeah. I'm talking in really sweeping terms here, by the way. Obviously, of course, of course. not all men. <laughs> <laughs> but some. But some. Yeah. So another thing that you touch on, there was, there was a phrase of yours that, that struck me um, in exploring... I suppose those, those rare occasions when internet dating could collide with, with love and with true connection. And then I mean, the question is posed, is this medium suitable for, for, for a sense of, of true connection? And there's something that you say here. You say, what if I am addicted to the medium and not the message? Yeah. And how did that feel for, for those boundaries to blur so much where you know, you're beginning to question, am I in love with this person or am I in love with this device? And how did you begin to sift through the two and separate them? I think ultimately it came to a point where I had to just break out. Mm -hmm. um, you know, for years I had been sending these emails to this guy and I just realized this could go on forever. Um, and I, I think it applies to everyone, but in particular it applies to writers because writers are always self-fashioning in words. Mm -hmm. And I mean, the interesting thing there is that the internet is in so many ways a written culture as well as a visual culture. Mm -hmm. And we're all guilty of this thing where, you know, we write into 
we, we sort of create this personal brand. You know, that's something else I explore in the book. But, like, how much of it is real? How much of it is fiction? How much of it is what we want to be? Mm-hmm. Which is a kind of truth in itself, if we're picking up on, on the, the previous conversation. Mm-hmm. There's a truth in that. It might not be the truth that we'd like it to be. Mm-hmm. But it's still something very vulnerable about the person who writes it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wanted to explore that. You know, in the final chapter, it's about love. It's about love under surveillance. And it's also about love and how it's expressed in an online culture. Because, um, yeah, it's, it's very hard. That's kind of the ultimate question of separating your internet feelings from your real feelings. Mm-hmm. And how much are you, be, you being manipulated by even the platform, well, by the platform itself. In that chapter, I talk about Gmail introducing these order replies where they start mm. to finish your sentences for you even inside the box of the email. So the kind of the privacy and the intimacy of the email is gone. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's hilarious because one of the things that happened was Gmail, like Google, had to actually limit the number of times it would predict I love you. Mm-hmm. Because everyone was just saying it in emails all the time and the algorithm picked it up and started predicting that that's how an email would end. Mm-hmm. I still don't know what to make of that. To me, that's very touching. But it's also potentially deeply cynical. And then do we descend into an automated conversation from emails back and forth and back and forth? Auto replies to auto replies and bots talking to bots. Oh my goodness. And so, so it descends. It, um, it could do. And... Speaking of, of these like blurring of blurring of, of boundaries, you find yourself somewhat intertwined with the internet that that it's it's impossible to to separate. And and at the beginning of your book, you you muse that perhaps you you are a cyborg. Yeah. And I'd like to ask you two questions. So when is it that you feel that you are most a cyborg? And then when is it that you feel that you are most human? Yeah, that's such an interesting one. I think. Um you know, writing a book is this, it's cheesy to say it, but it does involve a great deal of self-discovery. Mm-hmm. You do actually get over the things that once pained you deeply, but they don't go away entirely. And I think I'm at my most cyborgy when I get swept up in Twitter and it still happens. I'm so much more aware of it these days, uh, but my emotions are manipulated and I, it really hurts me sometimes. And they're stupid things that shouldn't hurt me. They're not even things said to me. It's just you know, seeing other people's opinions, mm-hmm. they get in on me. Mm-hmm. When I'm least cyborgy is doing yoga, which I've been doing almost every mm-hmm. day for a while now, um, especially in the pandemic, because that unites you with your immediate present, you know, mm-hmm. and your body and your breath. And to me, like, I can carry that with me even when I'm not doing yoga because I can just go on com- on the computer, on Twitter, and kind of breathe and slow down and remember that I don't have to give my emotions to the internet. Mm -hmm. That sounds very new agey, I know, but everyone has a version of that. And there are other unknown worlds that, separate from the internet, that you are are prone to to delve into. Uh, (laughs) And word on the street is you're, you're pretty into squids. Very into squids. And this is a nice example of how you can make the internet a friendlier place, because once you start watching squids and searching for squids, soothing, calming squid videos. The internet predicts that you want more of them. So a beautiful algorithmic rabbit hole to be into. Yeah, I recommend National Geographic. Take a squid minute. A squid minute. Yeah, make your life better. With a squid minute. (laughs) And then finally, so 
the Roisin, before she wrote these essays and before she lived through a global pandemic, um, what do you now know that you didn't know before deeply exploring your relationship with the internet? I think a lot of the things that we accept as inevitable are not. Um, that might seem hopeful or that might just seem, uh, you know, kind of advocating for the Unabomber lifestyle and uh, just retreating to a cabin in the woods. But, <laughs> you know, even if you don't want to do something dramatic, I'm not for cutting off all your social media. I think most of us need it right now. And the people who tell you that you can get by without it, they're in kind of a more privileged position. Mm -hmm. um, but you can definitely tailor your experience of the internet. And you can definitely take that attitude of, I'm not going to give my emotions to this today. Mm -hmm. I'm going to reserve my thoughts. I'm, I'm not even going to form a judgment. You know, mm -hmm. all of these platforms are engineered to force judgments out of us all the time. And then we're stuck with them. And then we get all this conflict inside when we can't stick with them because mm -hmm. that's not how humans work. We grow and we change and we evolve. So um, remembering that your real self does not live on these platforms, that this isn't who you are at all, mm -hmm. you know, and kind of claiming space for yourself, that it's a small kind of mental shift, but it makes a very big difference. Mm -hmm. Um, that's what's helped me anyway. I'm rushing with those words of wisdom. We will close out the end of our discussions on, on the known world. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. Thank you. Thank you very much to Roisin Kybert for joining Shiver Quinlan for that wonderful conversation at the National Gallery of Ireland. On our next episode, David Kenny speaks with the historian Dermot Ferreter about finding the truth. History can actually forge weapons from what the memory has suppressed mm. or forgotten. But then there are certain places that only the memory can go. To make sure that you don't miss that or any of our future episodes, subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. This has been a South Wind Blows production, and I'm Christopher Kassan. Thank you for joining us. I look forward to your company next time on Ireland's Edge. Mm.